0: I don't know whether it was the fame of our speaker, Hamish Fraser, or the title, namely The Urgency of Fatima, which is responsible for this excellent crowd, but I'm sure you're all welcome, and it's a great pleasure for me to uh, present Hamish Fraser to you. I don't know how long it is since I've known Hamish, perhaps ten years. He edits a journal called Approaches, which comes out from Scotland three or four times a year. And just today I was talking to Hamish about his background in religion. At the age of 14, he said he was interested in the military. He joined a kind of National Guard. And a few years later, he went to Spain during the Spanish Civil War, uh, fighting on the communist side. And he said even after the Spanish Civil War, he was still a Marxist and an atheist, He then went to a school in Scotland to become a school teacher, and religion was mandatory. Not that anyone took it too seriously, apparently, but it was mandatory. It was Scotch-Presbyterian religion, and Hamish said they had a religion prize. And just to spite God, who who he did not think existed, Hamish was determined to win that prize in religion and then boast that, well, an atheist got the highest mark in religion, but this shows you the way God works. The more he read, he said, the less hostile he became to religion. And then finally, a friend or some relative through marriage gave him papal encyclicals, namely the great encyclicals of Leo Thirteenth and Pius Eleventh on the social doctrine of the church. And Hamish finally realized, he said, that it was in the Catholic Church that the truth exists And the Marxists were but a shadow, a perversion of that truth. So the one thing I note about Hamish, he said in the Spanish Civil War, one of his jobs was to be in the motorcycle corps. They called it the Calvary, but they didn't have horses anymore. They had motorcycles. And some of you might have seen that Blue Army booklet with Hamish on a motorcycle. He looks like the Dead End Street people, uh, the, the gang. And the title of the article, though, is so significant, I know... That prayer can convert Russia. So it's a great honor for me to present from Scotland, Hamish Fraser, talking on the urgency of
1: fact. (coughs) Chairman, Reverend Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great privilege for me to be invited to address you because I've had already a most interesting visit to America, traversing the whole of the continent. And whatever evils that are in America, the one thing that impressed me more than anything else is the tremendous number of good people that are still in America. And uh, I have no intention of flattering you, I'm just merely stating a fact that the hope, what hope there is for America is in the good people that are in America. And indeed, uh, one of the things that has impressed me is not only the good people, the good Catholics I have met, but also... The evidence that there exists so many good people outside the faith. And indeed, one of the things that surprised me when listening to one of the, what you could describe as born-again Christian TV programs, was that the speaker, well, what he was actually putting over was nothing other than prayer and penance. And... uh, the fact that he uh, could command an audience for such a message shows that there, is, there must be a vast number of people in America who are ready for the essential message of Fatima, which is a call to pray and parents, but of that more later. First of all, I want to stress that it's not my intention to go into the detail concerning the message of Fatima. There's a wealth of literature on the question of Fatima. Uh, Suffice it to say that perhaps the most concise recent publication uh, concerning the message of Fatima is Francis Johnson's Fatima the Great Sign, which I think everyone will find of great use. I merely wish here to recall the basic essentials of the message of Fatima, which can be summed up in the following few words. First, that if a sufficient number of the faithful do the penance of fulfilling the duties appropriate to the state in life, God will permit the grace of the collegial consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart, and thirdly, that given this collegial consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. But, on the other hand, that if our demands are not fulfilled, that Russia will continue spreading her errors throughout the world, fomenting wars and persecutions of the Church, that the Holy Father would have much to suffer, and that various entire nations would be annihilated. And I would simply also recall in passing that in 1946, Sister Lucia told Dr. William Walsh, the eminent American historian, that unless the Fatima message was complied with by sufficient number, quote, every nation in the world without exception would eventually be enslaved and scourged by communism, unquote. So much for the basic essentials of the message, What of its authenticity. Now, it's true in one sense that it was a private revelation, but it was a private revelation which, like Lourdes, was for the entire universal church. Moreover, the divine origin of the message and its authenticity have been acknowledged by successive pontiffs. As Père-Joseph de Saint-Marie, uh, one of the greatest authorities in the message of Fatima, has pointed out in his Fatima 20th century prophecy, quote, it is for the Pope to discern whether the words of the prophet are of God, but once he has judged and recognized that a given prophecy is indeed from God, then he must obey, not as obeying a prophet, but as obeying God, whose instrument the prophet is. That is why it is the duty of the Pope and the bishops to be Our Lady and to fulfill the demands she made at Fatima, unquote. There is certainly no doubt whatever as to papal discernment concerning the message of Fatima. The evidence concerning papal acknowledgement of its authenticity is massive, as can be seen from the record of papal acts and statements. Again, it is not my intention to go into detail concerning all the Popes have done and said concerning the message of Fatima. Suffice it to, to recall the statement by the present Holy Father last May when he said, among other things, quote, The message of Fatima is so deeply rooted in the gospel and the whole of tradition that the church feels that the message imposes a commitment on her, quote. And later in his homily he added, quote, The evangelical call to repentance and conversion uttered in the mother's message remains ever relevant. It is still more relevant than it was 65 years ago. It is still more urgent. And so it is to be the subject of next year's Synod of Bishops, which we're already preparing for. That's to say for this year's Synod of Bishops. The important thing to realize is that in doing this, in making Our Lady's call to to repentance and conversion the subject of this year's Synod of Bishops, the Holy Father has done what none of his predecessors had done, In effect, he's put the message of Fatima at the top of the ecclesial agenda. Well, so much for the message and its authenticity. The third point to be noted, however, is that the demands of Our Lady Fatima for the consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart, this demand has yet to be fulfilled. The positive significance of the Holy Father's act of consecration on May 13, 1982 is to be seen in Pelsiotre de Saint-Marie's letter to me, a copy of which I have for for, uh, each one of you, I hope. And secondly, in in, in greater depth, in his article in the Marian journal Marianum, which is published in Rome, which article is at present being got ready for publication in an English edition uh, by Augustine Publishing Company in England and also, I believe, simultaneously by Tan Books in this country, But notwithstanding all the positive significance of the Holy Father's consecration last year, the fact of the matter is that the collegial consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart has yet to be made. For whereas Our Lady demanded the consecration not of the world or of the United States or of the United Kingdom or anywhere else, but the consecration of Russia specifically to Mary's Immaculate Heart, in the actual act of concentration, there is no specific mention of Russia. And secondly, in the letter, whereas Our Lady demanded that the act of consec- the consecration be truly collegial, that is, by the Pope and all the bishops of the world, in the letter sent by Cardinal Casaroli to the bishops of the world, they were not even asked to participate in the Holy Father's act of consecration. That notwithstanding, however... The May 13th, 1982 consecration, as i said, was of immense positive significance. But as I see it, to, to appreciate its positive significance, it must be seen in the light of the following facts. First of all, Monsignor Venancio's statement to Père Joseph de Saint-Marie in 1981 that there was no need to petition the Holy Father for the collegial consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart in that he was already convinced of its necessity. The consecration of last year must also be seen in the light of Sister Lucia's statement, quote, God will permit the grace of the collegial consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart when a sufficient number are complying with the message of Fatima. It must also be seen in the light of Pope John Paul's own statement on the 19th of May last year on his return to Rome after his visit to Fatima when he said, quote, I try to do everything possible in the concrete circumstances, unquote. And also, I think it is necessary to say it must be seen in the light of the statement that I already quoted by the Holy Father in his homily, that the evangelical call to repentance and conversion uttered in the mother's message remains ever relevant, more relevant than it was 65 years ago, still more urgent, and so it is to be made the subject of next year's, that's to say this year's Synod of Bishops, In my opinion, by thus putting Our Lady of Fatima's call for repentance and conversion at the top of the ecclesial agenda, Pope John Paul would seem to hope thus to elicit a sufficient response from the faithful to make possible the grace of the collegial consecration. The consecration, I think, must also be seen in the light of the Holy Father's decision to have a holy year beginning this month and also in the light of his placing Central America under the protection of the Mother of God. But what I feel has not been sufficiently appreciated about the message of Our Lady Fatima is that when she spoke of Russia spreading her errors throughout the world, it wasn't sufficiently realized that the Church, though not of the world, is very much in the world. And that the most effective method of spreading Russia's errors throughout the world would be by spreading them first of all throughout the Church, and so making possible the integration of leading churchmen in the vanguard of the Revolution. And that, I'm afraid, is precisely what has been happening during the last two decades. What must be understand is that while the prevailing disorder in the Church has proliferated in the wake of Vatican II, it did not begin with Vatican II. It began long before Vatican II. And this disorder derives primarily from the spreading of atheistic communis- communist Russia's errors, precisely as Our Lady said they would be spread unless her demands were fulfilled. But the, mass- the diffusion of these errors on a really massive scale became particularly manifest since the end of World War II, which enabled Soviet Russia to emerge as a colossus astride Europe and as a major world power. But what's been particularly distinctive about the post-war world is not merely the massive diffusion of Russia's errors in the temporal sphere, but also the successful diffusion of her errors within the church. So that latterly it's been possible for the revolution to integrate neo modernist Catholic churchmen in its vanguard wherever it, is, it has been on the offensive. Now, the phenomenon of communism spending its errors within the church, first became manifest in post-war France. As Jean Madiran, the editor of itinéraire and one of the most, most effective French Catholic writers, demonstrated with massive evidence in two books published in 1955, as he merely recorded what already happened when he published these books in 1955, the institutional church in France Elder daughter of the church, and moreover its intellectual powerhouse, had even then been already largely taken over by neo modernist anti anti communists. It must also be realized that whilst many people are familiar with Father Wilkin's book, The Rhine Flows into the Tiber, which describes how Vatican II was cleverly manipulated by neo modernists to their advantage, few people realize that the Rhine was, first of all, a French river, and that by 1962, key men in the anti-anti-communist French ecclesial establishment were in intimate liaison with progressive prelates in Germany and Holland. And this liaison was symbolized by the fact that it was the French cardinal Achille Lina who was the prime mover in securing what a Dutch bishop hailed as the first victory for the neo-modernist camp the one which made possible all further neo modernist exploitation of the council and that was by suppressing the commissions which had been set up by john the, uh, the 23rd it is also necessary to recall that the strength of the anti-anti-communist forces in the council was made clear by the fact that when 450 council fathers representing some 86 countries demanded quote, a solemn reaffirmation by the council of the long-standing doctrine of the Church concerning Communism, that their signed intervention conveniently disappeared, in inverted commas, having been withheld by Monsignor Achille Gloria of Lille, France. Now, it has also been alleged, and never denied, that the Russian observers invited to attend the Council had agreed to come only on the understanding that the Council make no explicit attack on Communism. And as though to corroborate this allegation and explain the withholding of the intervention of nearly a quarter of the Council Fathers, one of the very first liturgical reforms, liturgical reforms, Mark, you decreed by the Commission for Implementing the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy on September the 26th, 1964, was the suppression of the Leonine prayers after Mass, which had been said since the time of Pius Eleventh for the conversion of Russia. It seems that an explicit guarantee had been given, even if only by indirect assurances, that the Council, quote, would not be made an opportunity for polemics about communism, unquote. This would certainly explain not only the withholding of the demand for a restatement of the Church's doctrine concerning communism, and the suppression of prayers for Russia's conversion, it would also explain why Pope Paul VI did not consecrate Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart at Vatican II, I hadn't sent opportunity, if ever there was, for doing so, considering that all the council fathers were there under the one roof, and why he consecrated merely the world. For surely nothing could have been more polemical than the collegial consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart, since its purpose is, of course, to effect the conversion of Russia from the atheistic ideology with which Moscow has been identified since 1917. And since, in the wake of Vatican II, the Church has been progressively taken over at various levels, by anti-anti-communists who are also fiercely neo-modernist, it is this which no doubt constitutes the principal obstacle to the collegial consecration of Russia today. Fourthly, given the decision no longer to evoke either St. Michael's protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil, or the help of the Queen of Heaven towards Russia's conversion after each holy sacrifice of the Mass, it was scarcely surprising that in the wake of the Council, Russia's errors should have been spread with ever-increasing audacity throughout the Church, and particularly by means of a new liberation theology, which is essentially nothing other than revolutionary Marxism, translated into a nidium, designed to make it acceptable to a generation already deprived of sound catechetical instruction by the suppression of the Catholic catechism. And this domination of the post-conciliar church by anti-anti-communists is surely epitomized in france by the 1983 french missile which commemorates the centenary of the death of karl marx out of appreciation of the contribution to human sciences made by marx's socio-economic analysis Unfortunately, however, American Catholics are in no position to look down their noses at the 1983 French missile. Indeed, the missile in use in the United States churches today is perhaps even more offensive to Almighty God than even the 1983 French missile. For if the latter offends God indirectly by commemorating the centenary for the death of Karl Marx, the United States missile now in use offends God directly by suppressing all mention of the Incarnation in the creed, which is recited on Sundays and holidays of obligation in the United States. And by so doing, it also, in effect, suppresses the scriptural answer to abortion. Now, in a a supplement to uh, an issue of Approaches published last year, attention was drawn to the fact that the individual mass of the Nativity Uh, The prayer after communion says, quote, Father, we ask you to give give us a new birth as we celebrate the beginning of your son's life on earth. In other words, saying that we are celebrating that that our uh, our Lord's life began on earth at his birth. Now, the significance of this is to be seen in the light of St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 in which St. Luke, himself a physician, makes it perfectly clear that when our Lord was himself less than a month-old fetus, he sanctified St. John the Baptist in his mother's womb when he was a six-month-old fetus. Now, this is a tremendous fact uh, that we should rejoice in. It is the most devastating answer imaginable to all those theologians and doctors who have been disputing when human life begins. Because without having any of the advantages of modern science at his disposal, the apostle Luke, the physician Luke, was able to assert quite unequivocally just when a human life, when the human life of our Lord began, and when the human life of John the Baptist began. And it's also the most devastating answer imaginable to those theologians who pretend that when our Lord was a nurse, he wasn't really conscious, he wasn't really aware of the nature of his messianic role. Now, of course, it's not only Scripture that affirms (coughs) that our Lord's life began not at his birth, but at his incarnation. In mystici corporis Christi, St. Pius XII, XII, pardon me, I have no intention to anticipate the church. Pope Pius XII stated, quote, The knowledge and love of of our divine Redeemer, of which we were the object from the first moment of his incarnation, exceed all that the human intellect can hope to grasp. For hardly was he conceived in the womb of the Mother of God when he began to enjoy the beatific vision And in that vision, all the members of his mystical body were continually and unceasingly present to him, and he embraced them with his redeeming love. So, thus we find, is Pope Pius XII corroborating St. Luke, corroborating the consistent teaching of the Church in that statement. Now, it is therefore all the more tragic that it's at this very moment when abortionists would have us believe that human life begins not at conception but at birth, that some texts of the Mass contradict the consistent teaching of both Popes and of Scripture by asserting that Christ's life on earth, and the implication ours too, began not at conception but at birth. It's bad enough that this is done in certain passages in the proper of the New Mass, but the but the correspondent who, who wrote this uh, supplement to Approaches, which I published, also stated that when she had been in America, she found that the American creed said did precisely the same thing. Now, unfortunately, whilst it was possible for me to check the texts of the New Mass, uh, which she had quoted, it was quite impossible for me to check the, the American creed because I didn't have a copy of the in use. And indeed, it wasn't until a fortnight ago that I was able to do so. And unfortunately, uh, I found that she was right. I had hoped that uh, the creed she was referring to was one used by some way-out groups uh, uh, who uh, were statistically without significance. But in fact, I find the missile that she was referring to is the one used all throughout the United States from the authority of the bishops. Now, just to draw your attention to the, dis- to, to the omission, I want to remind you that in the the correct translation of the, the creed of the new mass, which is identical to the creed of the old mass, we get the following words. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now, in the, in the, in the creed uh, which we find in the American Missal, instead of these words, we find, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. All reference to the Incarnation Suppressed. Well, that, I think, is one of the most scandalous things that has happened <coughs> e- even in the last 20 years. And I hope That when you petition your bishops concerning the collegial consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart, you also demand the suppression of this monstrous caricature of the Catholic Creed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That indicates the extent to which error has been spread in the Church in this country. But Russia has been spreading her errors within the Church in other ways too. This is also manifest in the activities of churchmen, such as, for example, Monsignor Bruce Kent in the United Kingdom, who is head of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, in which he's associated with uh, pro-abortionists, proponents of a natural vice, revolutionary Marxists, and others. And, of course, there are countless others like him in other countries and in the United States as well. Their main preoccupation appears to be the unilateral disarmament of the West. And then again, there's a host of other churchmen identified with Amnesty International, some of them quite unwitting as to the functions of Amnesty International, whose main aim would appear to be that of obscuring the fact that the principal enemy of mankind is atheistic communism, which the church has denounced as intrinsically evil, and of creating the impression that the main danger facing mankind is constituted by whatever anti-communist governments or movements seek however ham-handedly and imperfectly to protect their peoples from the menace of communist internal aggression. So when we look at the picture of disorder in the contemporary church, it is indeed frightening. And also it it, it is to be seen that um, uh, for the greater part this disorder stems from Russia spreading her errors throughout the church. Incidentally, in this connection I would also recall that long before abortion was practiced, abortion was legalized in Western countries, in the free world, it was practiced in Russia from the very outset of the revolution. This was another of the errors which Russia pioneered and subsequently spread throughout the world. But when we look at the disorder not so much in the, ch- in the world as in the church, I think we've got to try to see it in perspective. I remember when I, when my uh, baptismal robe was still damp, I was rather shocked by the observations of a Dominican who said to me, he was trying to shock me, and he certainly did, he said, young man, he said, there are two marks of the church apart from the four that we've taught in the Catechism. And the two of these, on the one hand, the church is a one ark of salvation for all men. But on the other hand, because of its human dimension, it tends to be a perpetual sink of iniquity. And he said, if you don't understand that about the church, you understand nothing. Well, I think it's also necessary to see the present disorder in historical perspective, in the perspective of the first hierarchy chosen by our divine Lord himself. Because after all, over 8% of them not only betrayed our Lord, but they they hanged themselves in despair. And of the remaining 11, 90.99% engaged in headlong flight at the very moment when our Lord needed the most. Indeed, that was the first collegial act in the history of the Church. But to sum up, I would say that anyone who doubts the truth of the message of Our Lady of Fatima needs only to look around him or her and to see the extent to which Russia's errors have been spread and are being spread not only throughout the world, but also throughout the church. And the spreading of Russia's error throughout the church, as for that, the measure of this is indeed the supreme paradox of our time. The fact that when the world is littered with tens of millions of disillusioned Marxists, both in the West and behind the Iron Curtain, and concerning the disillusionment behind the Iron Curtain, no less a person, than Boris Bajanov, Stalin's former secretary, stated just last year that the communist faith in Russia no longer existed, that it was dead. At this very moment, when of universal disillusionment concerning Marxism, it is this very moment that revolutionary Marxism is seized upon by progressive Catholic priests and lay intellectuals as though it were the very last word in socio political wisdom. That is indeed the supreme paradox of our time. Marx claimed that religion was the opium of the people. The truth is that revolutionary Marxism has proved to be the opium of the neo modernist Catholic intelligentsia. However, if we acknowledge the, the extent to which Russia's errors are the basic cause of disorder in the post conciliar church, We must also acknowledge that there can be no restoration of Catholic order in the Church until Russia ceases spreading her errors, not only throughout the world, but also within the Church. And this will come about only when Russia has been converted, which, Our Lady Fatima assures us, will not take place until Russia has been consecrated to her Immaculate Heart by the Holy Father together with all the bishops of the Universal Church. And it's for that reason that everything we do must be subordinated to and seen in the light of the message of Our Lady Fatima. And why first priority must be given to working day and night to promote the collegial consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart. Now this does not mean that we stop doing everything else, that in the interim we we merely sit back and wait until such time as the consecration of Russia is effected. On the contrary, that would be to postpone the collegial consecration indefinitely. What it does mean is that more than ever, we must do all in our part to promote the collegial consecration, not merely by petitioning the bishops, which is certainly most necessary, but also by positively seeking to do everything within our power to combat disorder and evil, no matter where. For unless we do that, we shall not be fulfilling the duties appropriate to our state of life which is the penance demanded by Our Lady a Fatima as a precondition for the grace of the collegial consecration, which alone can affect Russia's conversion? But don't let's imagine that the duties of our state of life stop with our going to church and saying our prayers, or that it stops with our duties as fathers and mothers. It also includes our duties as citizens. As citizens, in every respect, we must combat evil and disorder wherever we meet it, whether in the church or in the world. But what it does mean, I think, is that whatever we do to resist evil and disorder, no matter what initiative we are engaged in, this initiative must be seen not as a thing in itself, but as integral to the penance demanded of us by Our Lady Fatima the penance necessary to promote the collegial consecration, which alone can restore order in both church and state. And it means that no initiative whatever can hope to succeed unless it is an explicit homage to and under the banner of Our Lady Fatima. And indeed, reflecting on this makes me ask why so many apparently worthwhile initiatives in recent years which showed initial promise, and were in themselves utterly unexceptionable, nevertheless collapsed and disintegrated through fragmentation and frustration. Is it perhaps that some of these really worthwhile admiral initiatives were seen as things in themselves as, as something autonomous, as something that of themselves would affect the results desired? Were they, could they be described in effect, as exercises in what could be said to be a form of traditionalist humanism, I say I think we certainly must bear in mind what our Lord said to Sister Lucia when she asked him why Russia's conversion couldn't be effected without the collegial consecration. When he said that the consecration must 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 precede the conversion of Russia, because he wanted this. To redound to the glory of his mother's immaculate heart. So, therefore, everything that we do, either privately or publicly of ourselves or with others, it must be seen as seeking to redound to the glory of Our Lady's immaculate heart. Otherwise, I'm personally convinced that any initiative whatever, however admirable, will come to naught. Now, concerning the duties appropriate to our state of life, there are certain things which we can't afford not to do. For example, when, when theologians and bishops become hysterical concerning disarmament, it would seem to be our duty to make it clear, not only to them, but to the world, that what cries to heaven for vengeance, what is most likely to provoke the wrath of God and occasion a nuclear holocaust, is not the manufacture or mere possession of nuclear arms, which could be used either immorally or morally against a legitimate military target. What really provokes the wrath of God and is likely to occasion a nuclear holocaust is rather the existence of legalized abortion, which already has occasioned the death of so many of Christ's little ones as to make... Harold Hitler, and even the monster Stalin appear comparatively humanitarian. I would also say that what provokes the wrath of God even even almost as much is the state of affairs in the Church as a result of Episcopal abdication of responsibility, in particular the omission to make clear what is the Church's authentic moral teaching concerning contraception. Because as a result of this omission All the evidence is that a very large proportion of Catholic women of childbearing age are practicing a so-called form of contraception, uh, which, in fact, is a form of do-it-yourself abortion, because the pill is potentially a botifacient, and the IUD is quite uh, deliberately a botifacient. And this exists to such a degree as to threaten to make do-it-yourself abortion integrate to the so-called Catholic way of life of our time. That calls for heaven's vengeance almost as much as the, the existence of legalized abortion. I would also say that when our bishops pretend that war may be caused by the possession of nuclear arms, it's necessary to remind them what Scripture says. For the epistle of St. James, chapter 4, verse 1, in asking whence come wars and contentions among you, replies immediately, from the concupiscences warring in your members. Our Lady Fatima puts it much more simply. She says, wars are a punishment for sin. So therefore, I think we should remind their lordships that their duty is like a a cobbler to stick to the last and to do that for which they have been consecrated, to wrestle with sin, which is the root cause of war. I would respectfully and hesitantly suggest that's another duty incumbent on us, and appropriate to the state of life of all of us who live in the affluent West particularly, is authentic love for the poor, and particularly for the poor who, in, who are in most imminent danger of having their poverty exploited by the revolution, with the approval and active participation of such priests as are proponents of the theology of liberation. I have particularly in mind the poor in Mexico, the land of Guadalupe and the Cristeros, which is in most imminent danger of becoming a dagger pointed at the very heart of America, of becoming a vast American Vietnam. Above all, I want to stress that authentic concern for the poor, the kind of concern that Christ had, the kind of concern that, that the missionaries of the church had throughout the ages, is the antithesis of the attitude of the poor on the part of the revolution and of such priests as jump on the revolution's bandwagon in the name of liberation. For the concern of the revolution is not to relieve poverty and promote prosperity, but to exploit poverty as a means of seizing power. And when they do seize power, if they promote any form of equality, it is by reducing all to the same level of abject misery, it is by incorporating everyone into the archipelago, the Gulag Archipelago. Before coming here, about two weeks ago, I was in El Paso, which I visited for the third time, and as usual, whenever I go there, I usually go across the border into Mexico. I find that Mexico is a particularly illuminating country, a frightening country in in many ways. The poor in Mexico, which is overwhelmingly Catholic, they have been oppressed for the last, well, at least for the last 70 years by an anti-Catholic, Masonic, one-party socialist state, masquerading as a democracy in much the same way as the peoples of Eastern Europe have been oppressed since the end of World War II by one-party communist states masquerading as people's democracies. And just as the peoples in Eastern Europe were sold into slavery by the Western Allies in the wake of World War II, so also, I'm afraid, were the peoples of, have the peoples of Mexico been betrayed into their bondage by successive U.S. administrations which have consistently supported the Masonic-Socialist one-party state. And I would respectfully suggest, if you want to see what a one-party Masonic-Socialist state has done to Christ, poor in Mexico, all you need to do is just pay a visit to Juarez, and see the shanties inhabited by the poor all around it. It's not poverty you see there, it is misery, and misery that is without hope, hopeless misery. And, as I see it, unless something is done to relieve that misery, that hopelessness, sooner rather than later, is going to be exploited by the revolution. The communists are already working hard at the job, as can be seen from the wall slogans to be read everywhere across the Rio Grande. In effect, literally, the writing is on the wall. And they are endeavouring to create an explosion which, if it happens, which, God forbid, will make anything that we've seen so far in Central America America, appear as a mere nothing. And as a foreigner, as an outsider, it's with hesitation that I make the following suggestion. But at the present time, this Masonic socialist one-party state in Mexico is in a state of almost perpetual bankruptcy, and it comes with its beggars' bowl regularly to the the American government. Now, and at the same time, this Masonic socialist one-party state has the audacity to demand international supervision of elections in El Salvador, whereas their own elections have been so consistently rigged that any party apart from the Partido Revolucionario Institucional hasn't a snowball chance in hell of ever ousting them. It, 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 the elections are manifestly rigged from the very fact that time after time the one party always emerges on top. Well, may I suggest that the United States government might discreetly point out to the Mexican government that before they get another cent of American money, it would be be, uh, necessary to have some kind of supervision of elections in Mexico to give the, the, the parties, apart from the ruling party, some chance of effecting genuine representative government in Mexico. I'm not suggesting that this proposal will meet with immediate acceptance. But I do think that Catholics have a responsibility to to their brethren, Jesus Christ, across the Rio Grande. I think it's to make the suggestion, to make the call, to make it known to them that they are not alone. I think that also is a duty appropriate to our state of life. I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's likely to exercise the specter of revolution in Mexico or in Central America, I I would go no further, as I've said, than to say that I conceive it as integral to the duties appropriate to our state of life. Just as also uh, we could say that integral to the duties appropriate to our state of life is is the necessity to defend human life and the necessity, needless to say, to defend orthodoxy and the mass and the catechism without having any illusion that uh, as to our being able without divine aid to achieve any of these things let alone restore Catholic order throughout Mother Church and throughout the state as a whole. What I mean simply is that unless we take the duties of our state of life seriously in every respect, that the revolution will not be contained that we won't get the grace of collegial consecration, that Russia will not be converted, and that unless a sufficient number of us become truly aware of what, what fidelity to the duties of our state of life implies, then we, we have no right to hope for Russia's conversion in our time for peace and for all the blessings that derive from it. On the one hand, to conclude, I would say that whatever we do, we must be aware of our own utter impotence by no matter what initiatives to achieve anything worthwhile, let alone restore order in either church or state. But on the other hand, we must be utterly confident in final victory, knowing not only that Christ has already conquered the world, but that, as Our Lady Fatim has told us, that her immaculate heart will triumph in the end, that Russia will be converted, and there will be peace. And finally, I would point out that on the, uh, on the back of the leaflets uh, containing uh, Joseph de Saint-Marie's letter, there are petitions to our bishops, and these are meant to be used. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.
0: We'll have a question period later on, but I'd like to give Hamish a few minutes rest. And I'd like to make a few comments. Today is a very auspicious day. It was totally without design. But I realize that today is the Feast of the Annunciation, and therefore Hamish's point is well taken, that our redemption began when the Holy Virgin said to the angel, Be it done unto me according to thy word, God would not force a pregnancy on Mary, the Blessed Virgin, even the sublimest motherhood in the world. And it was only when she of her own free will said, let it be, that the incarnation began to be, and as Hamish said, already therefore in the mother's womb from the first moment of conception, as, Saint, as Pius XII said, Christ was existent now, not simply as the eternal word, that is the word of, eternally, of the Father, but also as Emmanuel, as God with us, as totally God and totally man. Therefore, we do not celebrate our redemption as beginning with Christmas, but rather nine months prior to Christmas today, nine months prior to Christmas in the Annunciation. The second thing I just happened to read before leaving tonight was that this is the very day in which the holy year proclaimed by the present Pope begins. And the author of this article, he is a priest from St. John the Baptist Church in New York City on 76th Street and uh, Lexington Avenue. Their entire order is devoted to adoration of the Blessed Sacrament according to uh, St. Peter Julian Emar. And he noted that this present pope did not begin the holy year January 1st and ended uh, December 31st, but he deliberately chose the Annunciation... Because he wanted this holy year to last 14 months or 15 months with the very beginning of the mystery of our salvation that everything Catholic begins with this Annunciation and then one goes through all the seasons, the liturgical seasons, and then one finally goes to to uh, the, the Christmas and, and the birth of Christ. So I think it's very auspicious that this very important talk by Hamish Fraser occurred on this very important day in the Church, namely the Annunciation and the beginning of our Holy Year. I'd like to make a couple other notes. Is it the case that the American hierarchy, at least, did petition the Holy Father in the correct way? And would you say there is no need to ask our bishop to ask the Holy Father to make the collegial consecration since, according to Cardinal Carberry, or he seemed to uh, ask that they did so, and they did
1: so. I can't kind of recall the, uh, the actual terms of the petition from the American bishops to the Holy Father. I think it was 1981, but I think I think they asked him to consecrate the world Mary's to immaculate Heart. I don't think they asked for the specific consecration of Russia. I, I'm not sure about that. In my memory is certainly correct, that's what they did. It was a very great thing that they, that they actually did that, but. The fact remains that the full consecration demanded by by Our Lady consistently to Sister Lucia, that has yet to be made. And therefore, I think it is necessary respectfully to petition the Lordships uh, to to ensure that Our Lady's demand is fully complied with.
0: Comment, because uh, I'd like to get on tape also, that the gentleman went... I heard from the Blue Army that John Hefford, who is the leader of the Blue Army and who is very interested, of course, in the Blessed Virgin and Fatima, that John Hefford says that what the American bishop did and what the Holy Father did, in fact, did fulfill the request of Our Lady of Fatima. And apparently, John Hefford said that this also is the opinion of Sister Lucia. And if so, she is the most knowledgeable person. So I think they want Hamish's comment on that.
1: Well, <clears throat> I'm not interested in the opinion of anyone concerning the, the, the consecration. I'm concerned primarily about the facts. And if one reads the act of consecration, one finds that there isn't a word, there isn't a specific mention of rapture in the act of consecration. Now, the fact is that Our Lady has consistently demanded, Lucia has made it clear repeatedly that only the consecration of Russia to Mary's Immaculate Heart will suffice. Pope Pius XII consecrated the world in 1942. And she made it clear that this did not suffice, that it was Russia specifically that must be consecrated. Now, now in May 13, 1982, the act of consecration, in effect, repeated the act of consecration made by Pope Pius XII in 1942. It didn't add anything to the act of consecration made by, made by Pope Pius XII in 1942. And it's also true that Cardinal Casseroli's letter to the bishop didn't even ask them to participate in, in, in the consecration. Now These are the facts. Now, as regarding the other question, I have no desire to enter into polemic with anyone. I merely wish to say that When I first was made aware of the story that, uh, to the contrary, that is to say that the act of concentration fulfilled Our Lady's demand, Uh, I wrote to Père Joseph de Saint-Marie, the Carmelite professor in Rome, who is one of the leading authorities on the message of Our Lady of Fatima at the present time. It's always my practice to defer to the expert. I mean, I'm no theologian, I'm no philosopher. If, I, if there's a question of theology arises, I always consult a theologian. If it's a question of philosophy, uh, a philosopher. And in this respect, I contacted Per joseph de Saint-Marie. And in respect of the question which you ask, I think you'll find it very fully answered in Per josephs letter, a copy of which I think I've got enough copies for everyone. Did everyone
0: get a copy? Let's hope. I think
1: he answers it much more effectively than I could, and there's nothing I could say in addition to it that would yes. in any way amplify it. Yes? It would seem that way, because, I mean, Sister Lucia stated that the, uh, 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 that the, the grace of collegial consecration would come only when a sufficient number were complying with the demands of Lady Fatima. And uh, obviously, if a sufficient number of us were complying, the collegial consecration would already have taken place. And, uh, and its beneficial effects would by now be evident. I have
0: another question. Um, what would you say is the difference the... Uh, the question is, given the sad state of the government in Mexico now, how could it be worse if the communists took over?
1: Well, the difference is that the differences between degrees of uh, totalitarianism. I mean, Mexico is certainly a, a Masonic socialist one-party state, and it has oppressed uh, our core in Mexico uh, to the best of its ability for decades on end. But communism is, uh, well, it is the ultimate in totalitarian oppression. Uh, as I was telling uh, Dr. Mara this afternoon, one of the first things that made me aware uh, of why the the dream of a socialist paradise on earth turned out to be the Stalinist nightmare, when I, when I was trying to explain to myself how this had come about after I myself was a disillusioned communist, I only realised the, the 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 full. Uh, measure of communist corruption or reflecting on the words of Lord Acton that power tends to corrupt, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Now, I realized on reading these words that Lord Acton didn't know what he was talking about. He was talking about the power of an absolute monarch, which was in fact less than that of a minister in an ordinary democratic government. But absolute power, properly so called, totalitarian absolute power or absolute totalitarian power came into existence with communism. When, to begin with, you had the nationalization of all the means of production, distribution, and exchange in the hands of the state, controlled by one party, which itself was ruled by a caucus, which in Stalin's case was one man. Now, here you had a quite unprecedented concentration of power, sufficient to corrupt even a saint, Salon had been a saint even to begin with, which of course he wasn't. But in Mexico today, bad as things are, it's a long way off for the totalitarian concentration of all power in the hands of a, a small caucus such as exists in Russia. In Russia, for example, in Mexico, there is still some measure of private ownership of the means of production. There are still some areas of freedom left, The Church still exists and functions, Eh, perhaps not as well as it might, but it it, it exists and functions. But now, in Russia, the Stalin Constitution of 1936 made it clear, as does the Brezhnev Constitution of 1977, which reminds us, that no organization whatever is permitted, no organization whether economic, political, cultural, uh, recreational or sportive, no matter what. No organization, period, can exist in Soviet Russia unless it is controlled from within by the Communist Party. Now, Mexico is bad. But it's a long way off from that state of affairs. But it's precisely because our people in Mexico have been exploited by this Masonic Socialist one-party state, which has reduced them very successfully to some degree of hopeless misery, that the communists are going to exploit this with the great lie, as they always do. They're going to say, "Your oppressors have always been helped by the American government. We alone can effect your redemption. Not that they have any attention of effecting their emancipation. The communists always act on the principle of the great lie. Just as, for example, before the Russian Revolution, the promise was a land to the peasants. Well, we know what happened to the peasants after the revolution. They were not only expropriated in large measure, they were exterminated. And the same happens wherever communism takes over. It promises heaven and earth and the sky, the moon and the stars. And then, but this is only a means of seizing power. Power is the name of the game. And, but unless there is some preemptive strike to so that the, the Mexican peasants realize there's some other way of redressing their grievances, then I'm afraid you're going to get communism stirring it up with a view to transforming the whole of Mexico into a, 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 a gigantic Vietnam. And they're not doing that merely to inconvenience America, because this is integral to their global strategy. Because if America, if Mexico could become one vast Vietnam, one vast El Salvador, for example, uh, to mix metaphors, so that America was bogged down in trying to contain the menace on its immediate frontiers. Well, naturally, people would say, "Bring back our boys from Europe."
0: We need to defend
1: ourselves. It would mean also the isolation of Europe and the Finlandization or the Polonization of Europe, and uh, so uh, uh, which would in turn give uh, 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 the revolution time to wear a war of attrition against America, its main enemy.
0: The question is to explain what Mr. Fraser means by the social reign of Christ the King.
1: Well, simply that all institutions uh, would be permeated by uh, not only the Christian spirit, but that the whole of society would be dedicated to uh, enabling people to observe not only the natural moral law, but also to uh, obeying the social doctrine of the church, which is the means of effecting the reign of Christ the King on earth. Because at at the present time, we have, in effect, society permeated by the reign of antichrist in the sense that all our institutions are designed rather to make it as difficult as possible for people to lead normal moral virtuous lives a society should be so reformed as to make it as easy as possible for men to lead virtuous lives and in other words not only the economy and the political life of society, but every social sphere would be seen as helping to prepare for man's eternal destiny. And it is only then that uh, society would be actually tailored to human dimensions. At the present time, society is arranged merely to, to, to attend to man's temporal needs to attend to his pleasures and his temporal happiness. And as a consequence, instead of happiness, I'm afraid that it's diffusing
0: greater misery
1: than has ever been uh, known before, despite the affluence of our Western society, uh, which is manifest in in the number of people who take the drugs, the number of people who take the suicide, which is the ultimate in despair. Now, the reign of Christ the King would mean that Uh, every aspect of society would seek to make it as easy as possible for people to lead lead lives uh, truly dignified human lives. And as uh, as said in the the decree on the apostolate of the laity uh, by Vatican II, that the, the duty of the laity is to work so as to permeate the whole of society, all institutions, uh, including legal institutions with a spirit, with a truly Christian spirit. And uh, in a nutshell, that's what it means. I'd like to just amplify that too. Suppose that we had judges,
0: lawyers, teachers, professors, entertainers, journalists, all of whom breathed a supernatural attitude, all of whom have been formed by Christ, and who were not ashamed to install this in public institutions, there would be no part Just think of the difference between that, that entertainment would be uplifting, not guy above. So that we are going, as Hamish says, it is the reign rather of anti-Christ. Okay. The, the point was made that Vice President Bush is now being accused of being anti-Catholic because he attacked those Catholics who are pushing the Marxist revolution, and Dr. Campbell noted that this—that Bush is not really, it's not right in this moment, simplistically to say he's merely anti-Catholic because the Catholics themselves are not true to their own uh, vocation. Amen. Yeah, well, I...
1: <clears throat> unfortunately... Uh, because of certain churchmen, uh, the church itself is open to all such kinds of accusations at the present time. At one time, when the congressmen or senators looked over their shoulder, they had to ask, What is the Catholic Church? What, what, what does the Catholic Church say? What's the stance of the church? At the present time, uh, when they look over their shoulder, for all intents and purposes, the church has become invisible. It's become a mass of raucous, voices all contradicting each other, and, uh, and the voices most vociferous, those which are spreading disorder rather than order. And I'm afraid that so long, until the church, until order is restored in the church, I'm afraid you'll get uh, politicians such as Bush continuing to make such allegations. And unfortunately, not without an apparent measure of truth in them. Thank that
0: gentleman in the back noted that uh, the real meaning behind Bush's attack on certain Catholic trees he used their uh, unfortunate pro-Marxism to advance his own cause, which is that of secular humanism, which together with the Masons all over the world is trying to impose their own uh, one-world mm.
1: state, which is Masonic and uh, secularistic. Oh, I, I would agree entirely, but unfortunately, so long as disorder prevails in the church. Even people like Bush will be able to do that with an appearance of uh, truth, with an appearance of truth. Uh, that's what makes the disorder in the Church of the Presence so sad. And
0: and Remember, O most
1: recent version of it. Never was it known that you know, anyone approached that protection. In in the Lord help us all. In spite of this confidence, I pray to thee, a version of vengeance, my mother, to the thee of heaven, for thee O mother of the, the word incarnate, in spite of my petitions, faith, and in thy clemency, hear and answer me, amen.
0: Our Lady of Fatima, Queen of Peace, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.